This episode of the TriDoc Podcast is brought to you by LifeSport Coaching. Led by Ironman Master Coach Lance Watson, LifeSport Coaching has coaches all over the world, including the TriDoc. Our coaches bring diverse backgrounds and a wealth of experience to help you reach your triathlon and multi-sport goals. If you are ready to take your racing to the next level, consider LifeSport Coaching, where you can meet other athletes in group workouts and camps and consult with our team nutritionist. Learn more at LifeSportCoaching.com. Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. At long last, the days are getting longer and warmer, and best of all, the pandemic seems to be easing ever so slightly, and I, along with many others, find myself hoping and wishing for racing to return later this spring, if not early in the summer. I'm sure that many of you saw the recent announcement by Andrew Messick about Ironman's plans about going forward to try as hard as possible to have races as scheduled whenever possible and to continue to be flexible in allowing deferrals and rescheduling for athletes to accommodate those who might be uncomfortable racing even when a locale gives permission to go ahead and the race goes on as scheduled. It was unfortunate that within 48 hours of this message that Ironman then had to announce the postponement of several races, and I understand the frustration of everyone who was affected. I myself, after all, was one of them when Oceanside was postponed yet again. The thing is, I have kind of a hard time understanding why venting bile at Messick and Ironman proper has become such a spectator sport. First, there was the complaint that Ironman cancelled races too close to the event dates. Now is the complaint that people are being given too much notice? I mean, seriously, what do people expect and what do they want? The company's kind of beholden to the circumstances that are surrounding it. I don't really understand what they expect Messick and Iron Man to say. Iron Man, after all, is not really in the position to unilaterally declare that races are going to go on or to cancel races if a locale is not going to pull the plug. The guy is trying to thread the needle, and for people to be unable to see or understand this makes me kind of perplexed. So maybe someone can explain to me what it is that these folks want that is reasonable so I can get on board with their anger, because right now I honestly just can't be bothered. There's too much else going on that really matters, and I don't have the energy to waste hoping for Iron Man to go bankrupt, which seems to be what a lot of people seem to want. And in the end, that really only hurts me, because at the end of the day, what I'm actually hoping for is to be able to participate in those events, which doesn't happen if they go bankrupt. Well, what do you think? Am I missing something here that's really obvious? Help me out. Send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com and set me straight. I'll share your thoughts on the next show. Now, As opposed to the whole fiasco with Iron Man and Messick, I think something that we can all agree upon is that coffee is one of the absolute must-have necessities of modern-day life. We may not all be on the same page with respect to brand or how we like it prepared, but I would wager that almost everyone listening imbibes some some sort of coffee on a daily basis, if not more than once a day. Well, I have great news. Because recent publications have suggested that your morning, lunch, and afternoon cup of joes are not just delicious pick-me-ups, but may also be contributing to a longer and healthier life. I know that you've also likely heard of the performance benefits of caffeine. Well, on today's medical segment, I'm going to look at the evidence in support of all of this, and that's coming up in just a bit. 
long enough for you to go brew a cup. Well, after the coffee discussion, once we've come down from our caffeine high, I'm going to share with you one of my favorite interviews that I've done in a long while. And that's saying quite a lot, given how much I enjoy pretty much all of my interviews. Simon Marshall and Leslie Patterson are the authors of the very popular book, The Brave Athlete, Calm the F Down and Rise to the Occasion. This book is popular for very good reason, not the least of which is because the authors are themselves such incredible people. Well, I'm joined by both of them for a discussion on why they wrote this book and how it helps not only the athletes they coach, but also how they use it for each other. Best of all, if you enjoy that interview, and I know that you will, there's an entire bonus interview with Simon and Leslie that can be found on my Patreon page, and that's accessible to all of my supporters. I have a preview video on there with a sneak peek of part of the interview at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. If you like what you see and want to hear the whole interview as well as get access to other content, I hope that you'll consider becoming a supporter. All the information on the different levels of support and what each gets you can be found right there. That URL again is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And thanks in advance for considering. A few weeks ago, I came across an article in the online magazine Cycling Tips that was entitled, An Espresso a Day Keeps the Death Away. Now, with a title like that, I thought, this has got to be good, and it didn't disappoint. The article summarized research recently published in which scientists followed more than 20,000 participants for more than eight years and found that those who drank coffee had lower numbers of heart disease and all-cause mortality. Better yet, the study found that those who drank more coffee had a higher benefit, suggesting a dose response, and this is an incredibly important characteristic when you are trying to determine if an observed effect is there by chance or actually is causal. When you have a dose response, it suggests causality. This study was only the latest in a long line of papers that have shown the benefits of coffee on all manner of disease processes, and it comes after a period in which coffee's effects were actually thought to have quite the opposite effects on disease processes and death. For quite a long time, coffee, and particularly the main biologically active ingredient within it, caffeine, was thought to cause a higher risk of cardiovascular disease in those who drank more of it, particularly because of its effects on blood pressure. Now, caffeine does indeed raise blood pressure, but in a fairly trivial manner and, fortunately, for a fairly short duration of time. But in the end, there's a growing body of evidence and quite a bit of research that suggests that, in fact, the health benefits of caffeine far outweigh any potential risks. Endurance athletes, particularly cyclists and triathletes, have also long understood that caffeine has some performance-enhancing effects as well. The World Anti-Doping Association, or WADA, too, is also well aware of the fact that caffeine has some performance-enhancing properties for athletes. But because of its ubiquitous nature and the fact that those benefits are fairly small, caffeine was removed from the banned substance list in 2004. I suspect that this also has a lot to do with the fact that more than three-quarters of Olympic athletes and almost 90% of recreational endurance athletes report using caffeine in and around competition. And that's not necessarily just to get a boost in performance, but just because they're always drinking coffee. And that if caffeine were put back on the banned substance list, I imagine there might be rioting in the streets. 
So what exactly are those performance benefits that caffeine has? Everyone seems to know that they exist, but if you ask people, very few can actually quantify what they are, nor how they manifest as improved performance. So let's take a look at the research out there on caffeine and athletic performance, talk briefly about the merits of a caffeine holiday prior to an event, and then return to the health benefits that caffeine has been suggested to confer and review the evidence there to get a sense of how much caffeine we should be including in our routines, both for performance and for health. I'll begin first with the evidence on caffeine as a performance-enhancing drug. A large and very well-done meta-analysis and systematic review in 2018 summarized the findings of 45 trials evaluating the effects of caffeine on athletes performing time trials. The vast majority of these were cycling, though rowing, swimming, and running were all represented to smaller degrees. The results in all of these studies were really very consistent, with caffeine repeatedly showing a benefit when compared to placebo in the time required to complete a fixed distance, although that distance varied across all of the different studies. While the effect size varied pretty widely, the average effect size was about 2.25%. Now, that's not insignificant when you consider that in many competitions, the difference between first and second can be far less than 2.25%. A second large review paper in 2019 corroborated these results and added findings to support that caffeine improved performance for different components of exercise, including aerobic endurance, muscle strength, muscle endurance, muscle power, jumping performance, and exercise speed. Now, there are a few things to consider about all of this. The first is how caffeine works to actually improve performance. The answer to this is that we aren't entirely sure but we believe it has to do with caffeine's effect on the adenosine receptor that is found in various tissues. The net effect, or the effect of stimulating this receptor, may be simply to increase the mobilization of calcium in muscle cells, which makes muscles better able to contract, and to improve the metabolism of various metabolic fuels within those cells, making them both more efficient and better able to contract more strongly. Now, one of the side effects of activating this receptor is the potential for palpitations and increased anxiety, the side effects that we're all familiar of when we've had maybe one cup of espresso too many. Which brings me to the next consideration, and that is how much caffeine do you need to take and how is it best to take it? Almost all of the studies that were included in those two large reviews that I mentioned have looked at caffeine dosed between 1 to 6 milligrams per kilogram, with an average of about 3 milligrams per kilogram. So if you consider an average 70 kilogram person, and we all know that the average 70 kilogram person is pretty much like a unicorn, they don't really exist, but nonetheless, a 70 kilogram person needs to take 210 milligrams. An average cup of coffee is 100 milligrams, so you're talking two cups of coffee. Now, most experts feel that dosing at this average level of 3 milligrams per kilogram is likely sufficient, and that if you do so 60 minutes before exercise, that's probably the best time to do so. Now, how much you or how you take this caffeine is going to be a matter of personal preference. Most of the studies that were included in those large reviews looked at powdered caffeine that was obtained by basically extracting it from coffee, or it looked at caffeine that was obtained through different kinds of sports gels. Uh, 
Some did use caffeine obtained from coffee, but here things get a little dicey because, as everyone knows, the amount of caffeine in a cup of coffee can vary very widely based on how the coffee is prepared and several other factors. Still, coffee is definitely a reasonable way to get caffeine, but most adults are going to need a couple of cups, as I mentioned, to get a sufficient dose unless they add caffeine in a different form elsewhere. Now, another consideration relates to the rate at which caffeine is metabolized. People who metabolize caffeine more quickly are going to need to take more in order to get the sufficient dose to last long enough, while those who metabolize more slowly will need less. The half-life of caffeine is reported to be three to five hours. What this means is if you take 200 milligrams, half of that is going to be gone anywhere between three and five hours. But this varies among individuals based on age, older people's metabolize it more slowly, and gender, where women tend to metabolize caffeine more slowly than men. And this rate is further impacted by the menstrual cycle and the use of oral contraceptives, both of which can delay metabolism further. So all of this is to say that over the course of a longer event, like a 70.3 or an Ironman, topping up with caffeine along the way is a better idea for some than it is for others. Women or older individuals who may take caffeine at the same rate as a younger person may find themselves overdosing on the caffeine and getting themselves into issues where they become tremulous, uh, shaky, they may have some palpitations and maybe even some gastrointestinal distress, uh, whereas uh, a male, a younger male, can afford to take more of that caffeine because they're metabolizing it more quickly. So this is the kind of thing that you want to practice with in your longer training sessions and determine what the optimal dosing of caffeine is in order to not get into the jitters and make maintain the kind of performance benefit you're getting. Now, I've been asked by many people over the years whether or not taking a caffeine break prior to an event is a good idea, with the hypothesis being that if you are off caffeine for a period before an event, your body's going to respond more vigorously to the reintroduction of the drug than if you were on it all along. The answer to this is not really completely clear, but from what I can tell, this theory is not borne out by any evidence. I spoke with friend of the podcast, Kevin Coucher, a pharmacist at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, and he confirmed my understanding that caffeine is not a drug to which the body builds up significant tolerance. And so removing caffeine and then reintroducing it will not produce an enhanced effect. Furthermore, while there are no studies looking at this question specifically, there have been a handful that did address the question in a secondary fashion, and these didn't yield any definitive answers, suggesting to me that any such effect, if it is there, is likely small. So my advice is, has been and continues to be, don't deprive yourself of the coffee if it's something that you really enjoy. But if you want to take that caffeine holiday, there's really no reason not to, but I don't expect that you're going to get a significant advantage from doing so. Finally, and I think this is the most important thing to take away from this entire conversation, the use of caffeine is very unlikely to give you or anyone else a significant advantage over your competition. And the reason for this is simply because the reality is that all of your competition are using it also. At the end of the day, the real reason to use caffeine is not just to wake you up on those early mornings before a race, but it's to keep the playing field level as it's being consumed by everyone around you at the start line. So everyone's getting that two and a quarter percent advantage, and you don't want to start the day with a two and a quarter percent disadvantage. 
Let's finish the segment with where we began, and that's the health benefits of caffeine over the long run. As I mentioned at the outset, there's a growing body of literature to support the benefits of coffee in reducing all-cause mortality. A study just out in the Journal of Nutrition followed more than 20,000 men and women in Italy and found that those who drank three to four cups of espresso a day had as much as a third lower mortality than those who did not drink any coffee with lesser benefits for those who drank less coffee. And this study is on top of the one that I mentioned at the top of the show. So that's two studies, 40,000 people showing these kinds of benefits. Caffeine has also been suggested to stimulate hormonal responses that keep fasting blood sugar levels lower, which has important effects on long-term metabolic health. And a final study found that caffeine intake in the form of coffee in the United States had a linear inverse relationship with several disease processes and a nonlinear relationship with others, regardless of other modifiers such as age, body mass index, alcohol consumption, smoking status, and gender, suggesting again that caffeine can be a potent agent for prolonging healthy living. Now, I don't know that I accept all of this quite at face value, but what I take away from this growing body of evidence is that caffeine clearly does not have health risks and that it likely has some pretty important benefits. When coupled with the well-studied and defined performance benefits for triathletes, I'm going to have to say duo espresso prego. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the show? Well, email it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. Back in October of uh, 2020, I was an attendee at the uh, first ever virtual version of the Endurance Coaching Summit, which is a conference put on by Training Peaks and brings together some of the biggest and best minds in coaching and sports science from around the world. Well, it was there that I first encountered uh, the couple who you are about to hear in this interview segment. And I knew at that very moment that I had to have them on this podcast because they really are dynamic speakers. Simon Marshall, is a PhD and a former professor of behavioral medicine and public health at the University of California, San Diego. He was also the team psychologist to the BMC racing team, a world tour professional cycling team. He's published over 100 scientific articles and book chapters on psychology and health. His wife, Leslie Patterson, is a five-time world champion professional triathlete, professional mountain biker, endurance coach, and author. Leslie competes around the world as a triathlete and is founder and owner of Braveheart Coaching, a multi-sport fitness company that trains the bodies and minds of athletes worldwide. Together, this dynamic duo co-wrote the wildly popular and deservedly successful The Brave Athlete, Calm the F Down and Rise to the Occasion. It was really a joy and a pleasure to have them on the program and to, to talk with them. And here now is that conversation. Simon and Leslie are joining me. They are the co-authors of The Brave Athlete. Um, calm the F down and rise to the occasion. Uh, when I first saw them speak at the Endurance Coaching Summit put on by Training Peaks uh, back in October, I just was really, really enthralled with the lecture. Um, I immediately 
had to get this book, but I had to first make a big decision as to whether or not to get the written form or the audible form, which I'm told is extremely entertaining and <laughs> laden with many of the, the F-bombs that are on the title. And uh, so I had to make that choice. I may have to go out and get the audible as well just to entertain myself further. But uh, I'm really, really grateful that you've both uh, uh, agreed to join me here to talk about this book, to talk about um, what inspired it and, and how it continues to inspire you both and your athletes. Thank you so much for joining me on the TriDoc Podcast today. So I want to begin with that question uh, to both of you. I guess we could start with Simon. Uh, you know, what led to writing this book? You've had a very long career as a uh, uh, PhD in psychology. You've done all kinds of things with psychology with athletes. Why now for this book? Yeah, I think one reason was that my training, my academic training, um, doesn't didn't actually prepare me for what I was about to entail in the world of sport, from amateur right through to professional. And that's not a criticism of the training per se. It's just that it's really hard to peek behind or to learn uh, about how real people think and feel without getting a peek behind the curtain. Because in academic training, you're, okay, you're doing internships and supervised hours and so on. But the actual reality of athletes when they meet you, especially if you're a psychologist, they've got preconceived notions about what you do and what they're there for and why and how they can help you. And, and a lot of the techniques that we were trained that have scientific evidence behind them, athletes, I could tell when I was speaking to them, were just kind of rolling their eyes. Or I, had, I knew that they weren't going to do any of these things, right? I just, I just had that sense. And then marrying a professional athlete, which was the chance I got to truly peek behind the curtain, of crazy, um, <laughs> was then uh, really shaped my uh, uh, how I did sports psychology. And so the book really for us represents this sort of convergence of sort of academic or psychological science where, where that hits the road with real humans living real lives, doing real stuff. And so that's why it represents both the expertise of Leslie and me. If it had just been a a sort of a traditional psych skills book with chapter headings about, you know, emotional resilience and psychological, the thing or self athletes would be like, okay, this is just like, it's written not necessarily from the mind and how athletes think. And so that's what we really try to do. Um, so for me, it was definitely, uh, you know, I've been on a crazy journey throughout my athletic career and, um, you know, I've come from a world of acting and drama. And, and so I had kind of a first career uh, as a young athlete with a lot of great big dreams to go to the Olympics and sort of failed in that mm. and then went to a, a, you know graduate studies and drama and acting and really got a, a sense of who I was as a person and how I operated and worked because in my younger years I was around a lot of sports scientists and I was coached by a lot of sports scientists and they didn't know how to talk to me um, and I felt like I really wasn't getting the best out of myself it was all very data-driven um, and um, so when I went to drama school and then came out of that and got back into uh, my athletics, I think just really knowing myself and how I worked um, meant that I had a completely different approach. And so at that time, of course, uh, I was married to Sai and that different approach, I was able to discuss with him and really go through mm -hmm. and chat about some of the things I was testing out in my training from a mental perspective. And he was able to really talk about the science behind it why it was working why it wasn't working and I think 
through many years of doing that together and working with athletes, we came up with this brain mental model and then all of these different little techniques and approaches to help that were kind of based in a scientific foundation. Well, it's amazing to me reading the book how often I saw myself. Uh, I've been a triathlete 20 years. Uh, I played hockey, ice hockey for many years before that. And so I've, I've grown up as an athlete, but I've really, triathlon has been the focus of my life really for the last 10 years in terms of athletics. And it was amazing reading through this book how often I could see earlier versions of myself. And uh, I'm happy to say that a a lot of the strategies that you uh, give for trying to cope with some of these issues were ones that I did myself, uh, just intuitively somehow. Uh, And in other cases, I had to gain, I mean, you talk a lot about how confidence informs a lot of the uh, ability to to get over some of these psychological barriers. And for me, it was gaining confidence through successes and and seeing my own training. And that let me achieve some of the things uh, that I think would be a lot easier for people if they just did the exercises (laughs) that you've listed. Because I think doing the exercises, getting over those barriers would actually lead to better successes and confidence earlier than I got to it. Um, Give us a brief description for the very few people who haven't yet read this very deservedly popular, excellent book. Uh, give us a brief description of the chimp and professor brains uh, so that people can get a sense of, uh, of yeah. how the book works. So, so the notion of, of, of having uh, different parts of our brain, or functionally anyway, playing sort of different roles is certainly not new. It's not unique to us. This has been discussed sort of uh, quite a lot in the mainstream psychological research literature, but uh, also sort of in the sort of the, into the, some of the subspecialties. Um, and even though the, the science doesn't actually, here's the sort of the scientific caveat to this discussion here. I feel as a scientist, it's important to point this out, is that if there's one thing that we've learned about the, sort of not just the anatomy, but the function of the brain is that that rarely in the brain do things, we conflate, fun, we conflate function and structure, right? So rarely now, this part of our brain here does this. It's responsible for this. this part, and we know the brain is really a series of networks and algorithms. So it's a little bit of an oversimplistic uh, understanding to sort of designate metaphors, and this is this, and this is this. So that's the, that's the caveat. However, the reason we do that is because one, we need practical, actionable things that make sense to people and people can understand the, some of the complexities of it. And this is sort of, this is where we have to tread that line. But in essence, what we're saying is that there's a part of our brain that's right in the center, it's called the limbic system, a bit smaller than avocado. And our, the human brain is a lot like a tree, right? You cut it open laterally and the rings, you count the oldest parts are in the middle and the newer parts are on the outside. There's a part in the middle called the limbic system, or we call the chimp brain, that has been with us for millennia, uh, essentially. And its goal is where all our emotions come from, all our cravings and urges, all our fight or flight response comes from. And it doesn't, when we think about who we are and what we like to do, and that's not the part of our brain that's operating. That's another part, what we call the professor brain. But your chimp brain is really there to keep us alive, uh, to to tell us when things that are threatening are close to us or could be threatening are close to us, and to generally get us to avoid the holy trinity of psychological harm, which is uh, humiliation, embarrassment, and inadequacy in front of other people especially. 
And so the human brain is one. There's a whole series of neurochemical uh, um, uh, path, or I should say, actions that happen in that lim- in your limbic system when some sort of threat is detected. And it doesn't necessarily just have to be someone is coming at me with a gun and my life is in danger. It could simply be I'm entering an Iron Man for the first time, and that thought, all of these like urges I have of being scared or worried about not completing it or not deserving or am I going to be laughed out or what do I look like in my they all come from this chimp brain and there's not much we can do about that we're kind of born with it and that chimp brain has been given two quite critical powers from an evolutionary perspective two powers to make sure that we always listen to it because ultimately its its intentions are good to keep us alive Uh, and one is that it's five times quicker than our frontal cortex the part that makes us smart and where our executive functions are and the reason it's five times quicker is because we are processing the threat detection centers in our limbic system you may have heard of a few other where you of course have heard of your position the amygdala and a few other these these fear detection centers when they detect that there's an incoming threat a whole cascade of hormonal reactions neurotransmitter reactions are happening at lightning speed to get us ready to fight, to run away, to hide, or, or, or a host of other things will give us emotions to do that. And these are happening so quickly before our rational thinking brain has have even had a chance to appreciate that that's happening. In fact, the startle reflex is exactly one example of that. Or if you're swimming in the ocean and something brushes against your leg, you're like, oh, what was that? You haven't had a chance to process logically what it could be, but there's an initial instinctive reaction. And then meanwhile, our frontal cortex, the wrinkly part, the smart us, what we call the professor brain, only deals in facts and logic. And it's quite slow. It's very metabolically costly. It chugs through glucose at an alarming rate. It's expensive. And these two brains fight all the time. And we know why they fight, because one is trying to say, it's like a bodyguard. You're in trouble. You're in danger. Get out of here. What are you doing? And the other part of our brain is, it's just a race. I've got this. Don't worry. It's not life or death. But because your limbic system, your chimp, is five times quicker, it's processing information quicker. And then the other skill it has, it's five times stronger than our frontal cortex. And by strength, I mean, and again, this is a little bit of a, a, a little bit of a simplification of the science, is that when you detect a threat, about 30 neuro, different neurotransmitters are released that almost paralyze or slow down our frontal cortex even more. And the evolutionary purpose of this, of course, is so that we can't rationally think ourselves out of life and death situations. We need to run, fight or hide, not saying, hmm, is that a gun or is it a pen? Is it the, let me go and check. Let me, that's not a good survival mechanism long term. And so most of our mental anguish is because our limbic system and our frontal cortex, our chimp and our professor, are fighting over who's right and what the human should do as a consequence of it. And so our basic underlying principle in the book is say, one, recognize that this is the fight that's happening. And this is the big, the the sort of the the worst kept secret about our book is it isn't just sport. It's about anything that we think or carry some emotional charge to it, like presentations or being the best version of yourself for a date or how you are at work or how you parent or it's a constant fight between these two sides, what I should do or what I really want to do and so on. And winning that fight or managing that fight, if you can do that, that's the yellow brick road to happiness and contentment and enjoying 
things that are difficult but and changing our relationship with failure that's where those things are so what we try and do is one give some athletes the skills to say listen it's like taking your car into the shop i'm going to teach you to be a car mechanic of your own brain so that you know things that will work and won't work we know if you try and arm wrestle and an out of tantruming chimp using the look in the mirror, I'm strong, I'm confident, I know I can. Why that doesn't work is because your limbic system, evolutionary speaking, is designed to win that fight almost every single time, five times quicker, five times stronger. So the techniques at the heart of our book are managing that relationship using some stealth tactics to make our chimp brain calm down, go to sleep, or be di- look over there while we get on with the rather trivial business of swimming and biking and running. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love the whole metaphor because it works very well to help me. I mean, I had an understanding of this, but I think most people don't when they come to it. And uh, it, it works very well. I think about how the first third of the book is really describing this and helping people understand that it's there because understanding is the first hurdle that has to be overcome so that you can actually manage. And then the, the latter two-thirds of the book are strategies to help manage once you've understood, which I think is great. It's, it's funny, as you're describing the chimp brain and the, uh, the, the frontal cortex or professor brain, you know, in my job as an emergency physician, I see lots of people who are disinhibited. They lose their frontal cortex because they're out drinking. And so, I, you know, I think of the chimp brain as the one that says, hold my beer and then goes and does something yeah. not so smart. That's a great... Right. Uh, and then uh, my daughter, uh, I have a 15-year-old, and uh, she and I started doing a, a podcast separate from this one where we review horror films. And I am convinced that all of the characters in horror films have somehow lost their chimp brains because they don't do what us normal people would do, which is not go through that door or up those stairs. Or <laughs> I know. That's a great way of, uh, of thinking about it. And in fact, you know... As we, we often say somewhat flippantly, uh, given that your chimp brain is sort of hardwired, there's not much that can actually change it. There's some trauma and some psychotropics and stuff, but there's not much that can actually change that. And so what we've really done by education and learning, by developing a well-rounded professor to say the, the, how strong the arm is to say, hold my beer, um, but really, if you know when people drink or they get drunk, you and that does cause that disinhibition and the frontal cortex ability to know what's societally responsible or what's morally responsible goes away. You get to see what someone's chimp is really like, and if you when you're getting into relationships, you better know whether you're dealing with someone who is has an angry, volatile chimp or a sleepy, romantic chimp, and so. You know, seeing people when they're stripped of that disinhibition is really revealing. Yeah. Uh, Leslie, you've had an incredible career as a professional athlete. It goes back almost two decades now. I was looking over your resume. I mean, just really just a litany of success. How did learning all of this and and working with Simon, you know, how did these strategies help you as a professional? I can imagine how you use them to help age group athletes, but I really want to hear how, how... this made you even more accomplished or even better or more successful than you were? Yeah, I think a lot of the strategies in there were intuitive to me and that's where I got success. And once Simon stepped in and the pair of us really Mm. sort of defined them, then I could really hone them to then use them as kind of like an audit tool or just these tools uh, that I could master and really sort of build upon and build upon. So I think, yeah, we find a lot of them through my intuition and then 
made them better by Simon Science and then molding them. Um, so I've definitely developed them more and more as I've gone on in my career. And I think, you know, I've dealt with things like chronic Lyme disease and terrible, terrible injuries. And so utilizing a lot of these strategies to help me with the massive swings, you know, the ups and downs and to sort of mm. win my first world title in 2011 and then 2012 and then have another six years before winning another one, I think is testament to sort of, even although I was aging and my health declining and injuries increasing, I was able to kind of wrestle with the mind to get the absolute best that I could on, on the day. I want to get to what you just said about injuries because there was a whole section in the book on dealing with injuries that I found fascinating because uh, I have to say as a physician, obviously I see injuries, I get questions about injuries all the time and I I'm not ashamed to admit I've fallen into some of the traps that you, I think, really nicely talked about, about things that you really shouldn't do, um, you know, trying to make people feel better and, and not addressing the fact that when they're injured, they don't want to hear reason. They, they want to hear some kind of acknowledgement of what's going on below that in the chimp brain. So could you tell me a little bit, both of you, uh, both from your experience, Leslie, but also, Simon, if you could sort of give us the academic version, um, you know, there are abnormal responses to injury and, and, and how those on the outside can help people who are having trouble dealing with injury. Uh, you know, I, I'd like to hear what your experiences were, Leslie, is dealing with injury and how, it, how Simon was able to help you. And then also, Simon, if you could maybe start by just describing what some of these abnormal responses can be. Yeah, sure. So, you know, our, our research in injury and in sport injury for many years was anchored around this grief response, which you'll be familiar with. This response, that psychological response that came out of people who have terminal illnesses from a, 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 and, you know, denial and bargaining and anger and so on. And we found that while some athletes experience that, most don't. And the research suggests that that's not this grief response isn't actually how most athletes cope with injury. They go through what we call rather awkwardly, a cognitive appraisal process. And that's simply using your head to think through what things mean. And so a, you know, a pulled calf can be devastating to one athlete, but no big deal to another, even with everything else being the same, same level, competing at, and so on. So why is it that some injuries are so devastating to some people and some people take it in their stride? So that's one thing is like, what are the factors that tell or help us understand or predict who's going to cope better. But if we think of it as this appraisal mechanism, that tells us how we start looking for what we call these gremlins in that coping response. And so one of those, the moment the when you first get injured, what we, and so it, it could be minutes to hours after you've just sustained an injury, it might be an acute injury or a chronic injury, but you're most aware of it, oh my God, this isn't good, I'm injured. There's this primary appraisal mechanism that happens in your brain. And what you're really doing is to say, how bad is it? Uh, what And what's wrong with me? They're the first questions that people want to know. And so one of the gremlins is that these athletes who are so motivated and goal-driven as athletes, the moment they get injured, they become like passive patients. They don't find out. They don't. They just wait for things to clear up or they hope that it will clear up or they'll go to their their GP or they won't go and see a sport or an, a specialist or someone or they're, they're, the way that they try and, yeah, Leslie calls it her investigative health hustle. 
which is being as proactive as you are as an athlete, but being as proactive when you're injured. And so when we ask athletes, what's wrong with you? Could you write down as bet to the best of your ability, what's heroic? And some of them who are very hard to diagnose injuries or illnesses, they can't do that. And the medical community can't do that either. But most of them can, but they don't or can't because they haven't seen, they haven't had an MRI or they haven't had an X-ray or they haven't seen a special talk. Yeah, 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 they, they don't, don't know. A, a team around them yeah. uh, to figure it out. And I think that that's the most, one of the most critical pieces is having friends or people that you know of that you can at least ask questions. I mean, one of the, first things that I do when I feel like I've injured something or hurt something, and I don't mean in terms of falling over or having broken something or something that's very obvious, I mean more like a chronic injury or an overuse injury, is it that I, I, I get on Google and I look at pictures on the computer of where I feel that pain and what that muscle, tendon, nerve, what it might be so that I can sort of visualize it. And then I get with, you know, the people that I now have created this team, whether it's a physiotherapist, an orthopedic surgeon, you know, I have a number of different people that I go to to mm. really get to the bottom of why did this happen and what is it? So, yeah, it's knowledge is power, right? Right, right. And yeah. people are incredibly lazy when it comes to that. And they assume that the Achilles injury that keeps on recurring five or six times, that if they just rest it, it's magically going to go away and never come back. I mean, it blows my mind that people don't try and understand why did it happen? What's going on with my mechanics is yeah. causing this issue. Now, what, um, is, so, yeah. what does Simon do as a, a, you know, a good supporter of an injured athlete that, that the rest of us should do? Because, uh, you know, reading the book, I could, <laughs> you know, like I said, I'm not ashamed to admit that I, I definitely fall into some of those patterns that you suggest are not the things that we should do. So what, what, is, what does Simon do that, that helps you most when you have an injury you're dealing with? I think first off, he really tries to um, empathize and sympathize with how I'm feeling about how traumatic or tough the situation is for me so just to listen to that and sort of be there to sort of you know put an arm around me you know be okay let's talk it through this must be awful for you and and really sort of give those rather than get frustrated really empathize with that yeah i think i think the tendency to get into solutions very quickly is the wrong thing to do yeah. as a supportive partner uh, because on the one hand, there's a, an extreme emotional chimp reaction to being injured. And, and your chimp doesn't respond to facts and logic with, you know, the getting the plenty more fish in the sea talk. Uh, there'll be plenty of time. You'll come back even stronger. That doesn't help you when you're crying your eyes out and you've just had this and you've got a big race. And a, so it's to, it's to have some resonance or empathy with the emotional. You can see how much this is hurting somebody emotionally. As, as well as often physically. And just to try and step in the shoes for that, to what it must be like to feel like you've had your world taken away from you. Yeah. Um, and that's really important. And what we even do is we set aside, we don't just do this personally, we do this with our athletes. We say, don't try and move on too quickly. Give yourself, we call it your pity period or your wallow time. Schedule in your diary between on a Thursday, between, you know, five and 6 p.m., I'm just going to lose my shit. I'm just going to get pissy and annoyed. And that's what this is for. Let it out. We even have a technique that we teach athletes to do that 
rather than try and always suppress it, keep it down because five times stronger, five times quicker, it's going to come out. Yeah. So it's like having a little pressure release valve for that. I find that incredibly helpful because I, I myself, type A person, very goal oriented. Uh, you know, I think of myself when I've had injuries, my, uh, you know, period of grieving is pretty short because I'm so focused on just, you know, rehabilitating and getting back. But I have friends who when they get injured, I, you know, I've made that mistake where I just, you know, I, I want them to be like me. And that's I, I think what you're saying is so so true. You you just have to give them a period of time to grieve, let them be emotional. How do you help them flip the switch, though, from, from grieving well, fact, to then moving good, forward? Uh, yeah, I'll let Leslie talk about that. But just from, from a coach's psychological perspective behind coaching is that we literally use that switch analogy. We say, OK, what's a, now I know this person's temperament. I know this person, what they're like, how they typically respond. And I know what is and what should be a healthy, adaptive grief response or a appraisal mechanism, how long it should last. But for every athlete, there comes a time where, listen, enough's enough. We need to move on from this. And so when we when we feel that an athlete has reached that level for them, some need to be longer, we literally give them a time certain by saying, when you wake up on Thursday morning, flip that switch. It's a new day. You're moving on from this. So get all of it out before then, because Thursday morning, you're going to wake up and you're going to have a mindset where I'm not saying that those thoughts are not going to be creeping back in, but it's a, it's a decision. It's an in, having intentional thought about moving on. And that's quite important. Yeah. And then it's about being proactive. As I said, finding out what's going on um, why it's happened treating the symptoms as well as the cause, um, you know, looking at lots of different therapies that can help with that. Um, there's just so many things now that you can utilize. And then also finding the training that you can do that isn't going to make your injury worse, but can still fulfill uh, those needs within you. It can still achieve some goals, whether it's working on swim technique, if you've got a, a running injury, um, whether it's working on upper body strength, if you can't cycle, or whether it's doing a lot of cycle miles, if you can't run. You know, there's just so many different ways mm. to get a, a positive uh, a, a sort of state of flow in that, in that athlete uh, while also addressing the injury. In fact, we even avoid having athletes talk about you know, there's a, there's a deficit model of injury, right? Which is, I just want to get back to where I was. Oh my God, I'll be so happy if I can just get back. And we try and help athletes reframe that conversation we, the way where we talk to them about it, but also the way they talk about it in their own head is that we want to use this as an opportunity to create the 2.0 version of you as an athlete. So the 1.0 had, you know, a bad calf because poor mechanics and your connect chain, your right shoulder was, blah, 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 all, all the stuff that we know, but what, what did you do then that you would wish that you'd done in the future to make you a more well-rounded, even better athlete next time around? And so we we think of it a bit like the, you know, the Mr. Miyagi moment. You're going into the mountains, wax all, and then you're going to come back as a new reborn, even stronger than you were before. And that mindset, if you can get athletes to make that shift, they get excited by it. And some athletes, and we have a few examples of our of those in the book, that athletes, professional athletes that have got injured and they've taken the opportunity to overhaul their run mechanics, you know, and they've become back as a stronger runner, even though it wasn't a running injury. So they're taking this as an opportunity to say, how can I actually be even better than I was? 
And that's exciting for many athletes. It's tremendous. I, I, you know, I mean, so summing it up then the first step is allow the athlete space to have that emotion and to grieve, give them a fixed time to, to get it all out and then flip that switch understand, get the knowledge because knowledge is power, understand what's wrong and how you're going to get out of it and then create a roadmap to come back, not necessarily the way you were before, but better because you're going to address some of the things that got there. I I just can't say enough. I, I could speak to you guys for another hour. I know Leslie has to go, so I, I, I will end it now. I had a, a question I really wanted to ask about your dislike of memes, but we're not going to go there. Uh, I'll save it. I'll save it for another time. Uh, the book is The Brave Athlete, Calm the F Down and Rise to the Occasion. I can't say enough about it. I really enjoyed the written version. I'm told the Audible is um, highly entertaining, narrated by you, Leslie, or is it narrated by both of you? Both, both of you. Yes, well, English, alternating English and Scottish accents. Yeah. On the given chat. given this conversation, I can only imagine how entertaining it is. Uh, thank you <laughs> well, both. Thank you. thank you both so much. I, I just can't tell you how grateful I am for this opportunity to speak with you both. And thank you for being on the Tradar podcast today. Our pleasure, Jeff. And I should mention for my Patreon supporters, we recorded a whole other segment, and I highly encourage you to become a Patreon supporter so you can listen to that bonus content. I promise it'll be worth it. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my amazing intern, Maddie Pesh. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at the-tridoc-podcast.captivate.fm. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode? Or do you have a question that you'd like me to consider answering on a future episode? Well, send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit tridotcoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com where you can find a lot of information about me and the services I provide. You can also follow me on the Tridoc Podcast Facebook page, Tridoc Coaching on Instagram, and the Tridoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, train hard, train healthy.